All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. In this episode, Miles and I are going to be talking with the founder of Frax Finance, Sam Kazmian. This is going to be a great episode. Frax is an extremely interesting protocol with many different moving parts. And part of the reason Miles and I were so excited to talk to Sam outside of just the furious work that he has executed with an eight-person team, which is astounding, is there, you know, he's got in many ways a very similar, as you'll hear in this episode, similar view on what makes liquid staking protocol successful, but also has a very different strategy just in terms of the breadth that he of complexity, I would say, that he has embraced in terms of all just the different product lines and moving parts on Frax Finance. So this was a fantastic episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as the two of us did. Hey everyone, we've got a great episode here, but before we do, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Permissionless. This is the biggest and best conference in all of DeFi. It's the one that we do with Bankless, who's a great partner for us. Last year, we had almost 7,000 people there in West Palm Beach. We are moving this year to Austin, Texas from September 11th through the 13th. And if you are a listener of Bell Curve, any of these last five seasons, this conference is basically custom made for you. We're going to be talking about liquid staking, the theme of this season. We've got a bunch of great panels on MEV. If you listen to the app chain thesis, we've got a bunch of Cosmos folks out there in full force. We're talking about the converging architecture of Solana, the roll-up space in ETH and Cosmos. So I would love to see all of you there. And to reward you for being such great listeners to Bell Curve, you get a special 30% off code. It's Bell Curve 30. That'll get you 30% off tickets. Click the link in the show notes and then head over to the permissionless site and make sure that you get your ticket today. Again, that is Bell Curve 30. Click the link in the show notes. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve today. Miles and I are joined by Sam Kazamian, who is the founder at Frax Finance. Sam, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Great to be on. Really looking forward to this conversation. I think of all the the protocols that we've talked to so far this season, Frax definitely has one of the most intricate designs. Uh, and there are a lot of moving pieces for sure. So I think we want to start off by actually just describing almost chronologically when I think of Frax and, you know, sort of my, my core memory of Frax is of the stable coin. But obviously, since inception, Frax has evolved quite a bit. And obviously, there's a relatively large liquid staking component. I think Frax actually is the largest or the fastest growing liquid staking protocols in it since it launched back in October of 2022. So maybe you can just kind of take us through, Sam, the evolution of Frax is the stable, where you've expanded into, and then we can kind of tease apart how all of these different components of Frax Finance today uh, kind of work together. Yeah, for sure. Um, so exactly as, as you said, uh, Frax first launched in like December uh, 2020, like kind of at the end of DeFi summer. It was a uh, hybrid algorithmic collateralized stablecoin. And uh, since then, it's just the whole ecosystem has grown. So I, I think it's probably better at this point to kind of call it an ecosystem or universe uh, of, of things. But I think the most important thing that we'll probably get into is how the kind of ecosystem expands because a lot of people think like Frax kind of is, is doing everything or, or might be doing too much or like how do you decide where the ecosystem expands to, right? And, and as you said, now uh, it's not just a stable coin. There's uh, Frax Ether, which is a LSD 
kind of uh, system. We like to call it an ETH pegged stablecoin. Um, and it's kind of like the same thing. At least that's how we think about it. There's also FPI, which is a CPI pegged uh, unique pegged stablecoin. Um, it's not pegged to the dollar or another currency. And then there's a series of stuff we call sub protocols, which help kind of run uh, the stablecoin products, which is like Frax Lend, which is an isolated lending market. Uh, there's Frax Swap. Um, and then recently, uh, we are um, looking into launching Frax Chain towards the end of the year, which is a uh, kind of hybrid roll up. Um, and that's going to be very, very cool. It's probably the, the biggest thing uh, we're going to be launching since, you know, Frax Ether and the, the stable coin, the dollar peg stable coin itself. Nice. So, so walk us through, I mean, the, I think the vision is extremely bold and I want to tease out what exactly that looks like sort of best case in your mind, but walk us through that first decision, you know, in order the transition from being Frax, the, the stable coin into doing some of these other things. And in particular, you know, the, maybe we could talk about some of the similarities in between managing a stable coin and being a, a stable coin issuer operator and a liquid staking token issuer. And we had uh, Adrian from Steakhouse Finance on one of the uh, early podcasts of this season. He was describing the operations and sort of the balance sheet management of a liquid staking token is actually being very similar to a stablecoin because what you're doing is you have a you know, a liability that you're issuing that is subject to a, a deposit that can be withdrawn. And then you're managing assets that have to match up with that. So was that part of the initial inspiration or like help us like walk through, like what was the decision-making process from expanding to stable into liquid staking as well? Yeah. So, so one thing uh, I actually call myself and uh, a lot of people also uh, say it is like, I'm a stable coin maximalist. I think a lot of stuff in DeFi uh, looks like stable coins and you described it really well. It's a lot of uh, balance sheet management, right? You issue like a liability, you can call it an LSD, uh, you could call it a stable coin. Um, and the idea is the way that you essentially get traction is people uh, use your liability as currency, whether that's, you know, if they're doing their accounting in dollars, whether they're doing their accounting in, in ETH and they want to earn some interest uh, rate on, on the ETH, you can call it like a, a liquid staking interest rate or reward rate or whatever. Um, the economics of it are the same. It's basically like decentralized banking, right? You, you're doing some kind of uh, banking operation using autonomous smart contracts and you're designing protocols that keep the, the balance sheet liabilities of uh, your protocol uh, in check in, in, in most uh, scenarios, hopefully, right? And so one of the things is that, like, I think a lot of things in crypto, not everything, but part of the whole stablecoin maximalist thesis is a lot of things in crypto are just stablecoin issuers, and uh, they might not realize it themselves, but their business model uh, or, like, the way that the protocol gets traction and, and actually... Uh, captures value is being a stablecoin issuer. For example, one thing I always say is bridges are stablecoin issuers. They just happen to the, the, uh, issue a stablecoin that's the same brand as the, the native asset that they're bridging, right? And then the only way that they can get long form traction is if their issued stablecoin actually is used like as if it's the native uh, stablecoin that they took a deposit in, right? Like, for example, 
Uh, and, and that's actually why I think bridges are really dangerous, but that might be a, a discussion for another time. But for example, uh, let's say that there's a, a bridge that takes in uh, DAI, right? Like some, some other chain wants to use the DAI stable coins. Well, the bridge takes in one-to-one -one deposits of DAI and it issues like, you know, wrap DAI, whatever their, their bridge is, wormhole DAI or whatever, right? And the only way the bridge gets like sticky traction is on the destination chain. If everyone treats this wormhole DAI as, as real DAI and actually uh, basically uses it in, in liquidity, uh, pools and, and basically uses it, holds it, and, and all of these things. And then the bridge itself will then uh, be forced to decide kind of how it wants to monetize that monetary premium. Maybe it'll go and deposit some of its real die, right? That's like idle in this bridge into the DSR or something that Maker is like giving yield on. And so they'll try to, just like you said really well, uh, time duration uh, match the, the like liabilities that are coming back from the other chain, right, and want real die, they'll maybe like deposit the the die that they've put into like a close to risk free place, right, like a, the DSR or some other thing that Maker might have, like a, a sub DAO that they're creating recently and stuff, right. Um, a lot of these things look exactly the same, just like you said. Um, LSDs are the exact same thing. They're basically ETHPEX stablecoins. They're backed by you know validators or more specifically the Ethereum that are locked in those validators, right. And uh, the withdrawal queue is is variable, right? You can't really exactly predict the withdrawal queue that it's gone from three months down to three hours, right? And so it, it's it's variable based on macro market conditions and, and the global kind of Ethereum uh, space, right? And so you have to build a protocol that's pretty reliable in in like a spectrum of of these situations, right? That that keeps a, a tight peg on your LSD, continues to give uh, you know, decently good uh, interest rate because that that's kind of the reason why people want LSDs. They otherwise they would just hold ETH, right? And and then you hope that your LSD, the the token that you issue, gets included in things like as in, in liquidity pools and lending systems as like a native kind of currency, right? That essentially replaces uh you know ETH in in a lot of these places because it's so good that it's basically like. Uh, earning extra yield with uh, minimal extra risk. That that's that should be the goal, right? And so, in in that view, we uh, expanded to like Frax Ether because we think we know how to keep like a very very good uh, decentralized stablecoin at peg, like at a dollar uh, to the CPI, right? Inflation resistant uh, peg, and also to ETH. And so so far, it's not only worked really well, but also just it's proven, like you're saying, that our design philosophy is proven correct because I think a lot of people have come to see uh, LSD kind of game theory and, and issuance as the same thing, matching balance sheets. Whether they, they uh, say it or not, that's what they're doing, right? And that actually kind of, you know, maybe in the next few questions, talk about Frax Ether V2, which goes into our second way of thinking, which is uh, LSDs essentially are uh, lending markets behind the scenes, at least decentralized ones are. It's super interesting. I, I think like, just so I'm got the sequencing of these of these product lines, correct? It was first we have a, you know, fraction, fractional collateral uh, or fractional reserve stable coin, right? And that's mainly collateralized by other stable coins as well as ETH, right? Um, and then the thinking was, okay, right. we have 
you know, core competencies in collateral management. Um, stable coins don't look that different. I guess, was there ever, so we should basically, we have the ability to launch our own and it can be super complementary with the other, with the other products that you have. Um, was there ever like thinking around just maybe converting as much of the collateral for the USD stable coin as possible into your own liquid staking product um, versus completely separating the two products? Or maybe if it's not that synergy, was the thinking around, okay, we have maybe Frax Lend coming out. It would be great if we could have our own stable coin to be the canonical collateral for, for Frax Lend. Um, yeah, I would just love to hear kind of like the sequencing of the product rollout. Um, and we can get to Frax Chain because I'm fascinated as well in a, in a bit. But um, mm. just to make sure that I've got this correct, uh, because you know, from the outsider's perspective, there's a lot of products, right? There's a lot going on. Um, and just would love to kind of get like, you know, as a, it, a perspective of a fly in the wall um, in, in some of these discussions that led to, you know, the product expansion. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the, the main thing going back to kind of our, our view that the, the largest kind of protocols will be things that issue a liability and their liability will be used as money across like a large range of like the digital economy. And so in that, we think the most important units are dollars, right? I think that's a multi-trillion dollar uh, opportunity um, across the next like five to 10 years. And then the, the second most important unit I think is like probably ETH or we're very big on, on ETH itself as like a, a unit right, is, is like money or store of value. And I think the next most important stuff is either like like uh, Bitcoin, even like we've talked about Frax uh, BTC uh, as like another thing, but also inflation resistant units or like something pegged to like uh, a non-nation state kind of uh, currency that is not volatile, right? BTC and ETH are volatile. They don't actually track kind of consumer goods, things that you need to keep your standard of living the same. So like those three or four currency units, like units of stuff, I think is the most important uh, for the, the 21st century. That's just basically our kind of first principle thinking. Um, and like, like you said, lo and behold, like we have stable coins essentially in each of those units, right? And so um, we think that the way to become like a, a multi-trillion dollar kind of protocol, right? Something as big as Bitcoin, Ethereum, and, and like the largest things that are systemically important in crypto is to be able to service those largest units that are the most relevant for the, the coming decades, right? Um, and that's why we have a dollar. That's why we have ETH as a unit, a CPI-based unit, and basically a non nation state unit, and then probably in the future, uh, Frax BTC, which we've internally, it's, it's been uh, something we've been working on, uh, hasn't been released and, and stuff, but that is uh, something we're, we're pretty big on. So that, that's kind of the, the logic for it. The other thing that you said is backing Frax with uh, our own LSD. There's actually a lot of, you know, uh, liquidity forks and new types of projects like, um, I think it's called Athena or something, which is like a Delta neutral hedged with like LSDs or something. Um, there's like a small but growing uh, ecosystem of kind of LSD based uh, dollar stable coins. 
Frax actually is probably like the biggest along with DAI of like LSD utilizing uh, stable coins, like the dollar peg stable coins, because like you said, we have FraxLend. The largest FraxLend pair is Stake Frax Ether. And so there's a lot of over collateralized positions that back the Frax dollar peg stable coin with our own LSD. In fact, that's so profitable, like for, for the protocol itself, because we get interest rate for people borrowing the Frax. We get uh, Frax Ether TVL, like, like the amount of the total supply that goes up. We also get the protocol fees, uh, which is 10% uh, overall from the uh, POS rate, right, of, of, of the validators. So there's like basically every single layer of, of the, the stack, uh, FXS token holders essentially capture value. The, the protocol captures value. And I think we're like the only ones that, that can do that right now. Um, I think Maker does uh, a lot of Steeth over collateralized positions that the back uh, die, but they obviously use Steeth, right? And so Lido gets all of the uh, admin fees. So the answer is 100% yes. Not only have we thought about it, but this is another one of uh, those examples where when you build one thing and then you build the other thing exactly according to like a plan and a reason rather than just because it's like cool, uh, it, it makes every part of the stack better. It makes it more profitable. It makes it more synergistic. It makes it more useful and it, it creates more utility. Um, and so there's a lot of stuff that we're trying to do that expands on everything that's already out. So like, like Frax Chain and, and these kinds of things that are coming. Just to just to make sure that I've got a sense here, and it's a very interesting vision, Sam. And then Miles, I know you've got a question, so I'll let you jump in. But essentially, the you know what you're looking at is, and I've heard you talk about this: the value of something that's like a, of true organic demand is that someone wants to hold something, right? Someone has to really view this as money and ultimately want to hold it. So it seems like what you've done is looked out into the world and said, "Hey, there are kind of these buckets of things that people want to hold." Right. And some of that is this inflation hedge uh, type bucket. Some of this is an actual US dollar, right? Which is uh, medium of exchange, maybe a little bit less inflation hedge, but still, you know, something that people want to hold. Uh, ETH is something that people want to hold. And if you can sort of stand and be this issuer of sort of synthetics of that asset and successfully manage the risk on the back end, man. What, what a great business that is if your competency is managing risk. Multi-trillion. 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 And then even on top of that, you know, what you, um, what you also need, right, is, is for those things to be liquid, right? The liquidity and the trust sort of build simultaneously, right? So that's where Frax Lend sort of comes in and says, hey, like, we will help facilitate that and we'll take fees at the same time, which will accrue to this single instrument, which is... FXS is that is that about the size of the the model there? Yeah, and and that's actually uh, that's correct. And so um, there's there's actually like, that's actually very well said, right? And so um, I think something that's unique here is a, a lot of this stuff just has uh, FXS as the governance token. And for example, MakerDAO uh, recently, you guys probably have read Rune's like Endgame plan, which is very ambitious. It's very cool. Uh, a lot of the parts look kind of similar to the way that we view stuff at Frax, which means we, we're thinking about stuff probably correctly, just like they are. A lot of this stuff is actually uh, different. So for example, 
uh, Maker has this idea of a lot of sub DAO tokens, right? Like there's going to be all of these small different, you know, sub DAOs. Actually, we call our sub protocols. So there's some similarities, but like they have the view that a lot of or all of these will have different tokens, right? There's like Spark protocol, which is similar to kind of their Frax Lend. Um, and then, you know, Ruins made it clear that there's going to be like a Spark token. Um, we structurally don't think so. Uh, we think that this is all part of kind of a, a infrastructure that is made for issuing uh, liability, like currency that, that will be used. Um, and part of the reason is like, I just personally think like, um, I think that for Frax share, like FXS to become like a top five, top 10 uh, digital asset, it has to actually embody like a, a economy and like an ecosystem as large as, for example, Ethereum itself today, if it's going to actually get Ethereum's market mm. cap in the next like five to 10 years. If you kind of th think of the counterfactual for a second, right? Think about, for example, uh, if Vitalik was like, um, you know, uh, I, I'm releasing a new token, it's called Rollup. And it's like the, the token that's supposed to scale ETH or, or whatever, right? And like all of the like DA is like, you need to pay half of it in like Rollup token or whatever. And then, and like some in ETH and stuff. I mean, he could probably raise a couple billion dollars, right? He's Vitalik, like the one of the co-founders of Ethereum, right? And uh, it would be super lucrative, but he doesn't. Right. He, he, there, there's probably like 10 other examples I could give of. I'm sure if he sat down, he could probably like think of like tokens to launch or something. Right. Uh, a sharding token. I don't know. There's probably some ways to do that. Right. Um, and you could maybe make some reasonable arguments of like, well, imagine if there was a sharding token. Think of how much fundraising you could do. And like the sharding team at the Ethereum Foundation could be a thousand people rather than like. 40 people or something, right? And it sounds really good. But the reason Ethereum is the number two uh, crypto asset behind Bitcoin is that universe, that alternative timeline didn't exist. He did, decided not to do that, right? Um, and so our view is, is kind of, uh, is, uh, kind of the, the same way. In fact, uh, for a while, actually, we kind of had the, the view of uh, this the subdow stuff because when we launched FPI, so FPI actually has a different governance token called the Frax Price Index Share. It's the only other governance token in the system. Frax Lend, Frax Ether, so none of them have a, a governance token. And the reason for that is the peg for FPI is pretty risky. It has to keep up with inflation, and it's like the only other token we we've ever released to kind of separate the the risk. And my belief actually is that as the the risk for FPI and the whole Frax ecosystem becomes less and less because it's more uh, established. I actually think um, possibly it's a good idea to merge the FPI share back into the Frax share, the just general Frax share. And so like almost kind of like a, a merger of, of the two token distributions. So like later, like if it makes sense, right, if, if FXS holders vote and FPIS holders vote, just merge them back in. Uh, in some way, some kind of bonding algorithm or something and like merge them back into one token distribution because uh, I think that that's much more powerful and that's how uh, FXS actually becomes like top five digital asset and that's like actually what we're we're going for on like a on like a five to ten year uh, time horizon. So th that's how we think about it. It's not just that uh, hopefully you know it'll, it'll you know it'll, it'll work out or something. We're trying to systematically uh, get there.
You know, one thing I want to want to ask you about is just kind of compare and contrast the frac strategy for growth and this this uh, plan for global domination here with some of the some of what we've heard from sort of the the Lidos and the eigenlayers of this season, which is a little bit of a different strategy. Which is, you know, if I had to try to sum up the way Lido views the world, it would be we want to become we want to actually reduce the surface level of what we do to a point where and decentralized governance so much to the point where it's basically viewed as an extension of Ethereum. And that they view that as sort of a defensible moat that will allow them to expand and scale their market share. So it sounds like you have a, a, a different approach, which includes like encompassing like a little bit more risk potentially on the back end, which is sort of the other half of the ledger of doing more activities. Like, how do you kind of compare and contrast this idea of like really trying to do less like flattening the surface area of your offering and like minimizing governance uh, governance versus doing a little bit more on the protocol and the advantages you get those fees from Fraxland and you get to do multiple different assets, but there's a little bit more risk to manage on the back end. Yeah. Um, so I, I would separate it into two, two things. One is like the, the governance and decentralization. And then two is like the scope of like stuff we do. One is I, I totally agree with, with, uh, uh lido is like our our goal is to build each of these things in an entirely decentralized way if we didn't think so we wouldn't do frax eth v2 which is fully permissionless anyone can run nodes and these kind of things frax lend itself as a protocol is uh more hands-off and decentralized in terms of its interest rates than kind of like makers interest rates which everyone has to like vote on if they want to change it and stuff on the uh on the utilization curve if they want to change it uh ours is time dependent so we actually did that to minimize governance it just like doubles after a certain utilization every single like day um and basically a lot of what we do especially with the new frax gov module which is a, a fully on-chain decentralized no msig at all way of running all of the the frax ecosystem of, of stuff is to uh minimize uh, basically uh trust right like you shouldn't have to trust the the core team to do anything or to not be malicious for this stuff to work right um there will always need to be like smart contracts managing again like liabilities to to assets and stuff so like that's that's obviously uh totally fine as long as the management and running of those smart contracts is actually autonomous you don't have to actually trust that for example uh, I don't get compromised, whether that's like I lose my keys or something or I, you know, get pressured under duress and like like by the government or, or something to do whatever, like shut things down or, or whatever. Right. So uh, we totally agree with the first part. Right. Which is like everything should be as trustless and autonomous as possible. In fact, I think done a really good job of being one of the uh, most autonomous kind of protocols given how much we've built and, and the stuff we're pushing out actually is completing that that vision rather than uh centralizing it, it we're actually decentralizing it um i think the second part which is like uh which i actually don't know if i even um re read it in in the way that you said which is like uh do less stuff i think uh it, it's more about just um how big you already are and what your ambition is so for example you were like well uh lido just kind of wants to go back and and, and just be like part of the whole thing uh the ethereum ecosystem it's, it's funny for lido to say that they're like the, literally the largest thing in the entire uh 
uh, the Ethereum ecosystem, which is great. The congrats to them, right? Um, but I think the bigger you get, if you have uh, ambitions of, uh, you know, continuing to grow um, in a decentralized way, obviously, in, in, a, in an autonomous way, pushing out protocols that are decentralized, you will branch out to a lot of different stuff. Think of Uniswap, right? They now are doing NFT stuff. They recently launched Uniswap X, which is like a totally different paradigm of like how to trade based on uh, what a trader intends rather than on-chain orders. Um, who knows what they're doing in, in the back, right? They're, they're very, very good at working on really big stuff quietly and then boom, coming out and being like, you know, now there's a, you know, uni chain or something. Obviously they didn't say that and I don't know anything, but like, who knows, right? Um, and so same thing with Maker, right? Maker uh, is doing so much stuff or trying to accomplish a lot of stuff because they're already so huge, right? Uh, in the end game roadmap that like Rune published, there was also talk of maker chain i don't know if it's as far along as frax chain um it, it doesn't seem like it i think it's like a multi-year project but they are obviously are eyeing growing in that way so the main thing that i just like to stress is if you're going to grow and if you're going to you know as, as you're kind of saying take over kind of the, the world and like expand you need to do it in like a decentralized way yeah right but uh you need to do it in like a way where the stuff you're pushing out uh is is continuing to actually be more and more trustless over time which is very hard rather than gravitate to more and more trust because it's easy to basically be like oh now uh in order to do this next step instead of actually uh launching frax governance which removes our ability to do anything we could be like well we need this extra permission just just for like a little while Right. Yeah. We don't ever do that. We're actually Training going exactly the other way. Right. No, that's that's super interesting um, and obviously very thoughtful about, you know, as you expand horizontally, making sure that it's done so in a way that doesn't, you know, centralize a lot of like subjective human decisions. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, to your point, once you get to a certain size with any of these product lines, you get a lot more eyeballs on you. Um, and if part of the value prop of interacting with on-chain protocols in the first place is, you know, counterparty risk mitigation, trustless interactions with these decentralized markets. Um, you know, you will get pressure at some point for any to decentralize any sort of like central point of risk. Right. And so maybe that leads us to Frax V2 and, and where you see like the liquid staking side of the, of the, uh, protocol going. Um, and maybe I'll, this is, first of all, I'd ask you to just kind of lay out exactly what uh, V2 looks like, what you're opening up now um, versus, you know, current state. So this is on the validator side, I'm guessing. And then what the implications of our, uh, are from that, um, from a risk management standpoint. And, you know, Lido is in a similar position, right, where they've gone from a curated set um, and now they're opening it up to, you know, basically anybody can uh, propose a staking module, which could be permissionless to join if, you know, for, for certain conditions. And so, yeah, I would love to kind of hear just a general overview of V2 and then with the implications of V2, how you think about managing the additional risk that comes with it. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. So, so Fraxether V2 is a totally uh, revamped version of the Frax Ether system. So right now, 
the current way, the, the, the Frax Ether system is there's Frax Ether, the, the token that doesn't yield anything, it's like the stablecoin, and there's state Frax Ether. Um, and then when people mint uh, Frax Ether, they get to decide what they want to do with their ETHPEG stablecoin. They can LP it in AMMs that are incentivized like Curve, or they can stake it as uh, SFRAX Ether, right? And those people that stake it get all of the uh, proof of stake yield from validators. Now, validators in V1, they are ran by the, the core team, aka the other way to say that is it's a curated list of, of like people like us that can run the validators, right? Um, just like Lido, they have a curated list of groups that can uh, run these these validators. That that doesn't mean that there's anything else that, that's like off chain, right? Like the withdrawal address or is it like a smart contract, the treasury of the protocol, um, all of these things. The rest of it is entirely on chain. There's AMOs that balance and keep the, the, the collateral of the Frax Ether token there. Everyone can audit it. There's like a balance sheet and all this stuff. However, the validators are not able to be ran by everyone in V1, right? It's, it's not like what Rocket Pool is like. V2, anyone can come and, and run validators in a permissionless way. They don't have to be like curated or even like voted on. And the, the main way they do that is they post some, some ETH collateral, right? And then they get to borrow essentially a validator by basically putting their, their validator's address and then it gets spun up and then they get to control the validator as long as they're paying this kind of interest rate, which is an open market interest rate of uh, what the market's willing to, to pay to, to run validators and get the, the rewards themselves, right? Um, they get to run the, those validators, right? They basically pay an interest rate and put up some collateral. Sounds a lot like just taking out a loan, right? Except the, the difference is instead of taking out a loan of like, you know, dollars or something, uh, the loan is the, the right to control like a validator yourself, right? Um, the reason we built it in that way is we actually think that's the most generalized way to uh, build a fully decentralized LSD system. Like, for example, like you said, Lido has this system where people can propose like, you know, the, the staking modules, right? Which is like the way that they want to essentially define what they will do, uh, what like collateral they'll put up or how they'll guarantee like something and then be able to run some validators, right? Um, that's like the same thing. That's basically like writing the terms of some loan and then being able to actually uh, run the validators, get basically 32 ETH allocated to you and uh, you can repay that hopefully, right? Without getting slashed and, and losing the value anytime that the protocol wants you to repay it. So the, the reason we, we built Frax ETH v2 this way is we think it's actually the most general way to, to do it. Um, just an open-ended lending market. If you think about, like, for example, how Rocket Pool works right now, right? People come and they, they give their ETH, right? And then they mint wreath tokens, which is like their LSD token, right? The wreath token is basically like a, a lending receipt, right? If you go to Aave and you deposit ETH into Aave, right? What do you get? You get a ETH, right? And what happens in, in Aave is someone borrows the ETH, right? And then they start paying interest. Your a ETH that you got for lending into Aave, it slowly goes up in value, right? Because you're earning the interest someone else is paying, right? 
this is exactly what a, like a decentralized lending uh, LSD system is. It's just a lending market. You you go and you can call it something like, hey, mint wreath, mint our LSD token. What you're doing is you're getting people to give your uh, to you your protocol ETH, and then they get an LSD, aka a lending receipt, right? And people, whether you curate a list of borrowers or you let anyone be a borrower, they get to come and then they take the ETH and they get to spin up validators, right? Otherwise you wouldn't be an LSD protocol, you'd just be a lending market like Aave, right? Uh, so they, they get to spin up a uh, validator and then those people, whether they're decentralized, you don't know them, or they're people you've like whitelisted and curated, they have to pay back some of what they earn to the, the the lenders, the people that like minted the wreath token. Otherwise, why would people mint wreath tokens, right? That doesn't even make any sense, right? So that basically that dynamic between minters of LSD tokens, aka lenders of ETH that put it into the protocol and the other side, people that come in, take that ETH, spin up validators and run them well, run them competently, run them efficiently and earn a bunch of uh, rewards and pay some of it back to the LSD token minters, aka the lenders, uh, is how this healthy two-way market actually works, right? And you can kind of call it, again, we can go back to like stablecoin maximalism or whatever. You could call it whatever you want. Like I think when I first started talking about Fraxy 32 this way, a lot of people in Rocket Pool were like, Rocket Pool is not a lending market. You just, you totally don't even understand anything. Like you're so stupid. Um, and cause they have these different names for them, which is fine. Like you could call it like there's node operators and then there's, there's like, uh, wreath stakers, which means you just swap your ETH for wreath at the virtual price exchange rate, the same virtual price exchange rate. You get like compound C tokens or a tokens in Aave, Right. And so, um, structurally they're identical. They're structurally, economically, if you abstract it away, they're the same thing. So then we asked, how do you optimize this in a, like such a, a way that it is perfectly optimized for LSD markets, for people to come borrow validators? And then the, the people that come and borrow them, they can be anyone, they can be from anywhere. You don't have to trust anything or, or anyone to curate these people. And there's some actual market mechanism that makes sure that these people are always at the, the cutting edge. There's some incentive for people to be actually competent, uh, run these things at uh, good market scale, right? They, 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 there's an efficient market there. And for, for example, the way that ours works is there's a, a dynamic interest rate, the same way we've, we've designed it for Fraxland, where as long as you're a competent validator, uh, person running a validator, and you are okay with paying the interest rate, you get to keep borrowing them and you keep running them profitably. You take a lot of the profit yourself and you pay whatever the interest rate is at the, at the market. A lot of uh, what some people criticize this for uh, that, that I hear is like, oh, um, only really competent or like a small cabal of very, uh, very, you know, low cost. It, it like destroys the hobbyist at home or something, right? Um, the, this is the main thing that people uh, said. I think a lot of it was even from the Rocket Pool community, which has a lot of hobbyists. I actually don't think it's going to do anything to, to that because I think generally uh, most hobbyists are pretty competent 
And if they're not, this is like Bitcoin mining, right? It's like you don't uh, like the it, it's it's an efficient market, and you you want to basically reward people that are the most efficient as part of the design. But I actually think that uh, most hobbyists are pretty efficient, so I, I don't even really see it as as an issue. But that's like one of the only things that uh, I think people have said is is like possibly a concern. I don't even really think it's it's even a concern because the, the protocol is trustless. So it's almost like saying, like, uh, I don't like how it's trustless. We need to make sure that uh, we need to like intervene to uh, make sure other people do it. So that's kind of the general overall uh, aspects of it. Um, the maybe the most salient uh, critiques of it, I tried to include in, in there as well. Um, and so that's that should entirely decentralize any kind of trust assumptions. Like Like right now, when... Uh, Lido has the curated list of validators that run uh, their 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 validators for all of the the amount of ETH that people mint Steeth with, right? They they mint Steeth by putting in ETH, right? Lido has to take that the the lender is whoever's minting Steeth, right? And they have to take that and they have to give it to a curated uh, list of validators. Um, Lido basically hopes that. Uh, they are totally good. They're they're not malicious or compromised, and they're correct because they do a very very good job of of curating it. However, the thing is, you you have that specific trust assumption in that model. So um, that's that's the main difference. Uh, so Fraxeth v one is like Lido right now. Uh, Fraxeth v two is kind of like Rocket Pool in the sense that it's totally. Uh, decentralized, and then there's just no more trust assumptions. That's the big trade-off, right? Is when it's completely curated, you can rely on reputations as being actually an extraordinarily like valuable amount at stake, right? Reputation is like, uh, is, I think it was John Charbonneau said, is basically equal to like your future discounted cash flows, if that's your business, right? And that scales really well. Um, when you open this up to be permissionless, I think that that's where, you know, you run into some friction on the scaling side. Um, and I'm curious just to make sure I understand. It sounds like once we open this up, so maybe beforehand, it's just the Frax team that are running these validators, right? Full 10% commission goes to the protocol. Um, and there's no bond that's associated with the validators. And that makes sense because it's a curated set and it's not only your reputations, it's the entire protocol, right? You open this up and just so I understand, the what is the magnitude of the bond that uh, validators will need to post to join the set? And then is this lending rate basically the equivalent of a floating commission fee off of the staking yield, um, just maybe to make sure I understand like the change in the economics. It's for it's the same as the Rocket Pool, right? It's four ETH that they have to post. Uh, so Rocket Pool right now, as far as I know, it's it's eight ETH. They lowered it from the original sixteen. Yeah. Um, and for us in our modeling, it's it, we've seen that we were able to actually service this kind of decentralized lending market with four ETH. Um, I think Rocket Pools also started saying that they've they've think that uh, they can do four ETH as well, which I expect them to go down into. However, just as an aside, um, 
this is this should be obviously uh, set through VFXS governance and and like the the community because the risk is the the slashing conditions right this the risk is that um, usually the slashing conditions for almost everything is like one or two ETH max because you either accidentally double sign something or like you you're uh, you're behind in some way that you attest that you you weren't supposed to right but the way that the slashing penalties are uh, calculated in in POS is how contentious is something. And so obviously we haven't seen any event at all where there's like a partition of like 20 or 30% of, uh, you know, validators that sign something wrong and then they lose. And then, you know, the other 50, 60% sign the, the majority, right? The canonical uh, chain, and then they keep their ETH. Um, in those situations, the slashing penalty goes up a lot. Instead of two ETH, it's like four, eight, 12. In crazy scenarios, I actually saw this tweet the other day, I forget who uh, put it out. But um, if, for example, the majority client uh, I think it's Prism right now, if I remember correctly. Um, I actually don't even know if they're majority anymore. That means by over 51%. But if there's a client that's like around that, there's like a bug where everyone in that uh, client double signs. They don't mean to. It's just like it's some crazy weird bug. Um, and they they all double sign, so they all get slashed. But it's 51% of or like 50-something, the majority amount of the client's that uh, in the in the validator set that don't do this, they lose nearly all thirty two ETH, which is insane. Um, it, it's it's actually like I mean I don't think it'll happen, right? But, but like uh, in crypto, it's good to know the risks. Yeah. yeah, but um, there are scenarios where you can get almost all of your things slashed. So like the only way to be safe in every single possible you know uh, modeled out scenario that's like possible in the universe is to ask for 32 ETH of collateral, which Rocket Pool never did. Uh, they're only at eight now. They're thinking of four. Uh, we're thinking of starting the, the system with four. Um, and so it's a trade-off. It's a trade-off for how capital efficient you want to be with your decentralized uh, lending market, right, uh, of your LSD market, how much capital they, they put up the bonds, so to speak, uh, as Miles said, right? Um, but mm. they can definitely be insolvent in in like uh, certain kind of black swan scenarios. Sam, maybe to close, we could talk a little bit about uh, Frax Chain. And it, it was funny, I, um, you know, one of the reasons Miles and I were really excited to, to chat with you is just it seems, you know, in, in, in many ways, you agree with kind of the, the dogma, I would say, of LST providers, but you've also taken some very different design decisions as well. Um, and you know, you used the example of Uniswap before, um, but I, you know, Uniswap, I think is a phenomenal protocol, but I, I do think what they're doing is kind of like they're taking every layer of the stack, right? There's the the wallet and front end that they've got. They've got their desktop front end. Now they've got UniWallet and then they've got the aggregation layer at Uniswap X. They've got the liquidity layer at four. And then there's been speculation forever about the last layer, which is settlement. Um, I'm not sure if Uniswap X it makes that redundant or something, but who knows? But that I, I think what they're doing is vertical integration, right? They're taking every single layer of the stack. Would you describe that as the strategy 
for Frax moving forward? Would you describe your strategy as something outside of vertical integration? And if so, like where does the chain, where does Frax chain sort of fit into that whole strategy of vision? I think it depends on your definition of vertical because uh, like, or, or like how high is it that is, is horizontal basically in, in your view? Because like with, uh, with Frax, like I said, we're kind of uh, stablecoin maximalists. So we think there's a few units. Um, if those things become ubiquitous in the digital economy, they're the things that we issue that are pegged to those units, like uh, CPI, dollars, ETH, Bitcoin, right? Um, then we essentially uh, are ubiquitous. We're just the, the frax systems kind of everywhere, kind of like uh, like like Ether, right? right? Which is what Vitalik named Ethereum after, right? It's just, it's kind of flowing everywhere, right? Um, and so we don't actually do anything uh, or too much in terms of like uh, payments or trying to get, um, you know, like uh, like payment apps or something like the PayPal recently, uh, you know, is, is launching their own stablecoin, which I think that's like really cool. But we're never going to release like a Frax PayPal app or something um, that's outside of the scope that I think uh, matters, because I think, again, the most important thing is that people use your unit and then everyone else will build like payment systems or they'll build like an NFT marketplace that uses your thing. That's why OpenSea uses Ethan USDC, right? Like they, they, they will use it, right? Because everyone uses ETH units and dollars, right? And so um, if, you, if you look around, the most important prize is to uh, become the, the unit, right? Or become the issuer of, of the unit, uh, no matter how you call it, whether you say you're like a bridge or you're like a uh, LSD protocol or like a decentralized stable coin or like a uh, CPI inflation resistant stable coin or whatever, right? Um, Uniswap actually is taking a, like you're saying, an interesting approach because like they're like, this is our silo, like like trading, uh, you know, high frequency trading, like, like uh, MEV capture or like return to users, MEV protection, um, the like, wallet uh kind of stuff right like their their phone app which is really nice actually um i like it and then uh it depends it goes to be seen if they ideologically think that settlement like like unichain or their own kind of uh block space you know like monetizing block space uh into their protocol is part of their vision um i don't know i don't maybe if if hayden uh comes on here you guys can can ask him it's uh, it is part of our vision. That's obviously why we're uh, getting ahead of stuff and, and launching Frax Chain. It'll have our own LSD uh, and, and like Frax ETH as, as gas, right? Um, and so it'll also have, you know, extensive usage for when account abstraction is possible. You can, you know, pay with Frax, the dollar peg stable coin, or you can hold FPI to get yield and also pay for gas when that stuff is possible, right? Um, but like, we think that that's a huge part of our stack. Right, like block space, making sure that people that are using your your currency also uh, have a you know Turing complete ledger to also build on top of, right? Uh, that has native issuance of, of your currency. It's not like a wrapped, bridged version that someone else gets to issue on your block space, right? Um, but that's interesting. I, I don't know, and actually, uh, I, I'd love to know what Uniswap, like the the team there, thinks about their own kind of 
do they see it as vertical the, the way that you're, you're talking about it? Or do they kind of see it as a circle or more horizontal? I have no idea. It also, they have, they have multiple entities that are involved. They have the labs and they've got the foundation. And from my understanding, those are pretty separate at this point, but I, yeah, I have, I, I, I'm not speaking on behalf of Uniswap. I just want to make clear. I, this is my own, just looking at it, uh, sort of thought, but, um, but yeah, Sam, I look, I, I appreciate the time. I know you're a busy guy and you've been super generous. If, if people want to find out more about you, follow you, um, figure out more about uh, sort of fracks and get involved or, or whatever, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, um, I'm always on uh, Telegram and Twitter and uh, both Frax's Telegram and Twitter and my Telegram and Twitter are the same. Mine's at Sam Kazmian for both. And then Frax's at Frax Finance for uh, both. And so I'm always around unless I'm like working or coding or on a, on a podcast. Uh, so, um, literally anytime, if you hop in the, uh, Frax telegram, uh, or, uh, hit me up on Twitter. What's the timing for, for Frax ether V2 and, and Frax chain. Give the listeners a little bit of alpha here, Sam. You gotta fizzle out the alpha. Definitely. Um, so for Frax ETH V2, uh, we have the, uh, audit, uh, final audit lined up for early September, very early. September. So hopefully if uh, nothing uh, goes wrong, uh, which usually it doesn't, so that, that's, that's a good thing with our releases, um, towards the end of September maybe, um, or early October um, after the audit's done. And then for Frax Chain, uh, we are looking at at least a test net by the end of the year for sure. And then the goal is main net by uh January 2024. So that's coming up very, very soon. Nice one. That's just around the corner, basically. Um, well, congratulations and good luck on everything. And uh, we'll have to do this again soon. Of course. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, Miles. What an interesting episode. You know, I mean, it was great to hear from Sam himself. And this was a really interesting episode because, in many ways, I think he affirmed some of the ideas that we've been talking about all season. But I think in many respects, Frax has a very different approach to liquid staking than many of the other protocols that we've talked to this season as well. Obviously, they started as a stable coin. So yeah, it's just a lot to dig into in this episode, I think. Yeah, I wouldn't view this as some uh, a project that, yeah, I, as you mentioned, like started as a liquid staking protocol and is now expanding into other verticals. This is a project similar to Maker right? It was a CDP protocol that produced a stable coin. Um, they looked at kind of what their existing core competencies are, uh, which is managing collateral, right? And, and issuing something that people want to hold um, and can be used in lots of other DeFi protocols. And they said, you know, that sounds a lot like liquid staking sounds a lot similar to what we do already. Um, and is highly complementary with the other products that we want to launch like Frax Lend. Um, and so instead of, you know, I guess he's made the point that they partner wherever it makes sense, wherever it grows the pie. But in this one case, you know, I guess the bet is that they can create, you know, the most usage of a liquid staking protocol within the Frax ecosystem if it's under their own control. Right. And then they can decide exactly how to, you know, create the most utility for it. Um, and again, we talk about training wheels a lot this season. Um, and the training wheels initially were that you had to trust Frax, the protocol to manage the validators on the other side. Um, and if you're already trusting 
Frax the protocol to say manage the collateral for your stable coin, then you probably can get around with this idea of, you know, Frax the protocol managing the validators. But that's not sustainable to make this, you know, a multi billion dollar, maybe even trillion dollar, as he said, um, you know, liquid staking protocol. And so that's where Frax V2 comes in um, and gets super interesting about, you know, how they can maybe make it open up like permissionless supply side for the LST, but uh, leverage some of their existing capabilities in terms of having a lending market and things like that to make it more scalable than say, you know, rocket pull and the, and the, the challenges that they faced in scaling that permissionless supply side. Yeah. Well, I think the interesting, one of the most interesting insights of that podcast was sort of where we started about the back end and the operational uh, sort of competencies that are needed to manage a stable coin are very similar to managing a liquid staking token. And maybe to connect that insight into some a trend that's happening across the rest of DeFi, that many of these protocols are converging on the same sets of offerings. So I wonder if many uh, protocol operators out there had a very similar realization to Sam that we made this analogy to prime brokerage in 2019 before where everyone starts from a different part of the stack and maker started from the stablecoin part of the stack Ave started from the borrow lend part of the stack and probably at some point all of them woke up and said you know what really what i'm doing is managing assets and liabilities here for maker that is liabilities in the form of die and assets in the form of whatever gets deposited in maker for ave that is you know, liability, uh, you're matching up borrowers and lenders, and then you're taking on the liability of defaults and Ave is the, you know, the equity cushion essentially, but it's a very similar skill set. And I think Sam probably cottoned onto that before, uh, long before many others in the space ultimately did. And that's probably why you're starting to see many of these different product lines converge. I think an open question for me is how they're complementary to one another. And I think that has still to play out. That said, I did, I think Sam painted a very clear vision of like wanting to be the issuer of many different assets that people want to hold and finding a way to uh, balance sheet manage the risk on the back end of that. But in I'm in the in the sort of curve versus maker versus Ave go wars, I, I am yet undecided on that. Yeah, no, I, I, it is funny. I think you're right between both protocols that facilitate borrow and lending, um, you know, CDP protocols, and I would say like liquid staking protocols and bridges, as you mentioned, right? Like a lot of this is, is inventory management. Um, and those, you know, I think it's a, trying to weigh the trade-offs again, saying, okay, this is a core competency. Here's how launching, you know, this synergistic product could actually make the other products better. Um, the sort of concept of cross-selling is not new, right? Um, and, and the benefits of control that you get with that to to actually execute on it are, are significant. But again, this like I think we tried to tease this out. On the surface, it seems to fly in the face of, hey, here's what protocols do really well, which is being super dumb and unopinionated and minimizing the amount of subjective human making, right? These are the these are the that's kind of like I would say 
the consensus way to build a protocol that will last for decades or, or hundreds of years. Um, and yeah, I think that we're going to see this a lot going forward as, as some of these like winners start to emerge and look at other, you know, adjacent areas and see core competencies. Um, we've talked about Lido and like restaking um, as, as, as one that could be like, you know, just from an outsider's perspective, an obvious synergy, but weighing those trade-offs against, you know, increasing the bloat of and, and scope of governance um, will be super interesting. But I think it's a bold bet um, to, to manage all of this under the purview of, of one governance, you know, uh, and I think that they're, they're making that bet. So it's interesting to hear maybe what would seem to be a little bit more of a contrarian's perspective versus the a lot of the folks that we've talked to this season. I think that's that's a fair thing to say. I think one of the other points that that you made was Sam probably did figure out there's maybe an operational model of fully insourced LSTs versus completely outsourced partnering and then a middle ground done in the form of Anchor which looks more like a whitelisted sort of model where you have a protocol like Lido or Rocket Pool operating the backend validator set but then it's branded as, you know, the the anchor protocol or whatever. And if I had to guess, I bet you Sam will not be the first, Frax will not be the first protocol to, first of all, understand that the core competencies that makes a DeFi protocol successful today are much more widespread um, and apply across many different product sets. And we'll probably want to control a little bit more of the risk around liquid staking, delegating to validators that you don't trust. I mean, Miles, what's the best way to mitigate the principal agent problem? You make them the same, <laughs> you know, um, right? So I, I feel like I feel like that's not I feel like that's not going to be just Frax that takes that approach. the The other interesting point I thought I was finding myself thinking that the Frax Lend part of that business looks a little bit like it's similar to the concept of protocol and liquidity in a sense because one of the things that you have to do as an issuer of a something that you want to be as liquid and fungible as a money is you need to be liquid. And a great way to do that is, is Sam said this in his own words, to control your own destiny. So instead of hoping that, you know, Ave adopts Steeth, which is really what helped propel Lido into the stratosphere, I think, you could have your own borrow lend protocol and control your your destiny a little bit more. Even having staked Fraxeth as a gas token on on the chain, on Frax chain, that would also be a source of demand. So you kind of got demand and liquidity there. And I don't know, I, it came to me after the interview. So I, I, we didn't get a chance to ask Sam if that's the correct mindset, but that was something I was thinking about. No, I think that's totally fair. Um, you know, I like at Reverie, we work very closely with Osmosis. And um, I think that a lot of these themes are similar to sort of the, the Cosmos mindset, maybe not in the sense of uh, hey, let's do one thing like one app and do it amazing. But hey, let's t let's really leverage like governance and um, let's take as much control as possible, right? Um, and with with Osmosis, we have things like superfluid staking, which is a you know a a type of liquid staking in a sense, almost reverse liquid staking that helps the protocol. Um, and I think that that's. Things that you can do really when you have like a diversified product set and also control the block space is super interesting. Um, 
that's where it seems like they're going here with with frax chain um you know of course the main difference being that you know the liquid staking component is not their own chain it's actually the base layer um that and they're making a bet on that as an asset that people want to hold but yeah i think that this is as close to you know a full vertical and horizontal integration like basically a DeFi chain um that you will see on eth for for a little while and it, it's again like a bold swing um and it will be super interesting just to see like how those trade-offs actually play out um and and maybe if the trade-offs the downsides are not as you know um apparent as people think that they're going to be um we'll see more of this right like i could totally see synthetics moving to its own you know DeFi chain or something like that um but yeah, uh, no, a very, very different approach than everybody else that we've spoken to. And um, I think that's why we wanted to have them on. I would imagine that many of these, like synthetics, I guess they, they ha- Ooh, I'm going to blank on the name. Is it Vertex? Whatever their sort of aggregator, their aggregated liquidity layer is, uh, maybe negate. That is the one thing I've, I've I, let me see, do you view it this way? In, in a sense, these aggregation layers which end up doing a lot of things off chain might dampen the uh, value proposition of having your own app chain in a sense i mean yeah uh, i think they do i think yeah i think that's right i think that's right it's chain it's chain abstraction um it's chain abstraction yes versus aggregating everything to your chain right um and making your chain kind of the center of activity and i think that yeah that's both are going for this general play of aggregation because both understand the challenges of of ux today um but you know are you going to deal with that complexity off chain and and maybe uh, maybe even at the wallet level um or are you going to basically vertically integrate to have the amount of control you need to abstract all that complexity um and yeah those just even outside of liquid staking, that's like a broader trend that that we see, um, especially straddling both sides between Ethereum and Cosmos. It's tough. To, I mean, by the way, whenever we say, how is this going to play out? The people tend to put these things in very binary terms, right? The answer could be both. And there's room for multiple models. So it's tough to say. All right, buddy. This was a fun one. Um, I will see you see your uh, same time next week, my friend. Thanks.